Okay, we're in 1 Kings chapter number 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, if you got your Bibles. And if you don't, why not? <laughs> it's just us. I can say that, right? Because <laughs> uh, usually it's my kids that's forgetting them. It's like, oh, you're one mistake. You never let you live it down. Yeah, but how many times do you make that one mistake? <laughs> 12, yeah. 1 Kings chapter 12. So we have, we're making the transition from the United Kingdom to the Divided Kingdom. And last week, the, the title that I kind of gave things was uh, Failing and Falling Apart. And we looked at Solomon and his, uh, his end, and we looked at Rehoboam and his beginning. And we said that Rehoboam was just kind of Solomon number two without the wisdom. And so with Solomon... Uh, we got to the place where it says, but he loved many women. And because he loved his many women, they had turned his heart away from the Lord and he served false gods and he turned to idolatry and he built pagan temples and he did all these different things. And so God told him, because you have turned away from me, even after I've appeared to you twice, uh, I am going to take away your kingdom. I'm going to take away Ten tribes from you, I'm going to give it to someone else. And for David's sake, I'm going to leave you with two tribes. And uh, Solomon tried to kill the guy uh, who God was going to replace him with. And the guy ran away, went to Egypt. And whenever Solomon died, Rehoboam took over. And whenever Rehoboam was getting ready to be uh, anointed as king, the people came and said, you know, your dad was really hard on us. He taxed us heavily. He conscripted us into his labors, into his army, into his building projects and all of this. And so our one request for you is go easier on us. That was it. Go easier on us. Make our lives easier. And he was inheriting a time of peace. He was inheriting uh, great riches. He was inheriting a united kingdom. He was inheriting all of the political system that Solomon had put in place with all of his wisdom he was being set up much like Solomon was. And so he was inheriting something great. And if he would have played his cards right, he would have been uh, set up to have a wonderful kingdom. But the people came and said, just go a little easier on us and we will serve you faithfully. He went and asked his advisors, the old men that had served under Solomon. And they said, if you will just do as they said, just ease up on them, at least make a political promise. I don't know, you know campaign speeches, right? Mm -hmm. At least... You know, tell them you're going to go easier on them. And if you serve them, then they will serve you forever. But he didn't like the idea of being a servant because after all, a king in his mind wasn't a servant. Uh, Solomon definitely wasn't a servant, was he? Solomon used the people to fulfill his dreams and to enrich his coffers. And that was the example that Rehoboam had. And so he said, Solomon has showed me that a king is to rule and to squeeze everything he can out of his people, and that's what I'm going to do. And so since the older men didn't give him the advice that he wanted, he turned to the younger men that was brought up with him and said, what say you? And they said, hey, you're the king. They do what you say. So go back to them and say, you're going to make it worse on them. You're going to show them who's boss. And he says, hey, I like the sound of that. It appealed to his ego. It appealed to his pride. And so whenever he was going out and looking for advice, he decided to go out and 
follow the advice that appealed to him. And anytime we're making decisions, anytime that we have things that we're getting ready to go through, it's very easy to find someone who will tell us what we want to hear. And so we kind of went through and looked at the pros and cons of both sides. The older men had nothing to lose. They didn't have anything to gain, right? They had already put their time in. They'd already done their retirement. They weren't seeking some kind of a position in Solomon's court, or excuse me, in Rehoboam's court. They weren't trying to prove themselves. They weren't trying to, they already, they already did their time. And so they had nothing on the line they could tell him truly. Not only that, they had uh, experience on their side. They had uh, the years that they had spent serving in government. They knew how things worked. And all of these things on their side. But the young guys, they were looking for political appointments. They wanted to be part of Solomon's cabinet. They wanted to ride on, or not Solomon, excuse me. They wanted to ride on Rehoboam's coattails and prosper themselves. And so they were more inclined to tell him what he wanted to hear. Whenever we were going out, the Bible does say in the multitude of counselors there is safety, but we need to be careful what kind of counselors we're listening to. We have to evaluate the counsel that we're listening to and find out what do they have to gain? What do they have to lose? Do they have a track record? Do they, you know, you don't want to find a financial advisor that has never had any money to manage. You know, you're not going to get, you're not going to be going and asking financial advice off of the guy that's never held down a job and never moved out of his mom's basement. Wouldn't be smart. And then on the other end of that, you're not going to go ask for financial advice out of someone who's never had to earn their money. That was a trust fund baby that's never known what it was like to have money trouble and to rise out of that and manage the money. So you want someone who has some reliable experience. And something that was never really even a part of it from either side is you want someone who knows the Lord. But that wasn't even on their radar because... Solomon never prioritized godly counsel. Rehoboam definitely wasn't going to. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, because of Rehoboam's foolishness and listening to bad counsel, uh, the kingdom was divided. They said, uh, fine then, if you're not going to ease things up on us, you're not our king. And they followed Jeroboam. The kingdom split just like uh, just like the prophet said that it would. And Rehoboam attempted to send his tax collectors out to assert his dominance, and they killed the tax collector, mm-hmm. right? And then he went to gather the armies together. They were going to start a civil war, and the prophet came to him and said, this was of God. It was prophesied of God. Do not start a civil war. Return to your, your homes and just accept what's happened. You guys messed up. This is the consequences. And so that's what ended up happening. And so now Israel is divided. You have the northern kingdom, you have the southern kingdom, and you have two different kings. And we know from uh, just past studies and whatnot, the northern kingdom is never going to have a good king. They in total have uh, some 19 kings, I think it is, 17 kings. Can't remember. Anyway, and not one of them is good. The southern kingdom is going to have... I can't remember if it's 20 or 22. Altogether, they have 39 kings. I know that. Okay? And uh, they out of that, they have eight good kings. And out of those eight good kings, three of them are just kind of mediocre. So they only have five really good kings out of the entire time of the southern kingdom. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they last about 100 years longer. 
So the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim lasts for about 200 years. The southern kingdom of Judah lasts right almost 300 years. And then they're both carried away into captivity. And so anyway, that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be following through these. But anyway, because uh, Solomon allowed all of these ungodly influences, the pagan wives and all of those things, all these ungodly influences in his life, uh, it caused him to go a wrong direction, fell apart. Because Rehoboam trusted in ungodly advisors, once again, everything fell apart. And so we have to be careful. The influences that we allow into our lives, the people that we uh, surround ourselves with the uh, direction that we're going in, the counselors that we're listening to, because it makes all the difference in the world of how our lives turn out yeah. and whether or not our our world hangs together or it falls apart. Mm-hmm. And both of these cases fell apart. And so now we're going to be looking at the fallout on it and kind of our um, thought, our central theme for tonight is two men that didn't listen. And I know... For the women in here, you can't imagine a man not listening, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two and a half. Anyway. Oh, you're talking about men or women? Men. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were talking about the women. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, job counts as one and a half. There you go. So anyway, two men that didn't listen, and so we're going to be looking at that tonight. And so let's start off with reading in uh, 1 Kings chapter number 12, down at verse number 25. And it says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and dwelt therein, and went out from thence, and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of the people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made a house of of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered up on the altar... Uh, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he offered upon the altar, uh, which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. And he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. And so what we find in this passage, we find Jeroboam starts his own religion. He makes a counterfeit uh, religion. And why does he make this religion? Okay, so he was afraid that his people would return to Rehoboam. He was afraid to lose his kingdom, right? And so fear was his motivator. 
we can kind of compare whenever Rehoboam took the kingdom and he made his foolish mistake, what was his motivator? Hmm? Pride. So Rehoboam said, I'm going to show you who's boss. Not realizing that God was the boss, right? And Jeroboam said, I am afraid. So I'm going to do something foolish. And both of these things are horrible motivators for us, pride or fear, either one. Both of them are rooted in unbelief. Because pride says, I don't believe God is as big as I am. And, un, or, and fear says, I don't believe that God is big enough to help me. Right? So one says, I am big enough. The other one says, God's not big enough. But both of them are rooted in unbelief. And we see that playing out in their lives. But if we look back here in uh, verse number 25, he is building out all of these places. And the idea behind that is he's fortifying himself. He's thinking, I've got to build this up. I've got to make a name for myself. I've got to build fortresses. I've got to protect myself. Why? Because God's not going to protect me. I've got to. Right? And we come down to verse number 26. And Jeroboam said in his heart. Now, if you're in the habit of underlining things in your Bible... You can underline, he said in his heart. You'll find in the Old Testament that phrase 10 different times. And nine out of 10 of those times is by man. One of those times it's said by God. Okay? The other nine times whenever it's said by man, it is always in a time of doubt, of fear, of pride, of arrogance, of disbelief, because those are the things that's rooted in a person's heart. I, I know I'm always ripping on Disney and the whole thing of following your heart, but there is definitely plenty in Scripture to tell us that it, that is a horrible idea. You have in one time, uh, David, whenever he is afraid, whenever he is running from uh, King Saul, that he said in his heart, one day I'll perish at the hand of Saul. That was David in a moment of fear, in a moment of unbelief, right? Well, we've got Jeroboam here in a moment of fear, in a moment of unbelief. And so why is it a fear and unbelief in Jeroboam's place? Why is it that I've said that this is two men who didn't listen? This is one that we're studying. We'll get to the other one here in a minute. But why would Jeroboam have any kind of security? Why would he have any place where he could take heart, where he could have confidence? Well, he's already heard from God, hasn't he? If we go back to chapter number 11... In verse number 34 of chapter 11, this is, uh, let's go back to 33. It says, Because that they have forsaken me and have worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments as David, as did David my father, Howbeit, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him prince over uh, prince all the days of the life for David my servant's sake, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his hand and will give it unto thee, even ten tribes. So, what is it? His son's head. Okay, so out of his son's head. Okay. 
Um, so I will take the kingdom out of his son's hands and will give it unto the even ten tribes. So how did Jeroboam get the kingdom? Who gave it to him? God did, right? So if God's the one that made him king, who's responsible for keeping him king? God is. And we can carry this over even into salvation. There's a lot of people that think they have to keep their salvation. It's like God gave it to them, now they got to keep it. They're doing the same thing as Jeroboam. And they're going to end up living in fear and doing stupid things out of fear. But if God gives it to you, it's up to him to keep it. But anyway, if we continue in this, uh, God makes him promises here. We come down to verse number 38, and it says, And it shall be, if thou wilt hearken unto all that I command thee, and wilt walk in my ways, and do that is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, uh, that I will be with thee, and build thee a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel unto thee. And so he has a promise from God. God has told Jeroboam, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, if you'll keep my commandments, follow after me as David did, I will make you a sure house. It's going to be yours. I gave it to you. You didn't go out and fight for it. You didn't bring it about yourself. I gave you the kingdom. I made you the king, and I will keep you the king as long as you follow me. Okay? And so he had... A certainty. He had a promise from God that if he followed, if he trusted, if he obeyed God, then God was going to keep him on the throne. But as he was talking to himself in his own heart, as his emotions was getting the best of him, as the fears was welling up in him, he says, I don't think that God is going to be the one to keep me as king. I see this thing that I'm afraid of. I've got fears. I've got doubts. I've got anxieties. I've got all these things going on. And it's up to me to make some sort of a way to ensure that I can hang on to what God has given me. And so this is his thought process. Okay? And so Jeroboam said in his heart. So the conversation he was having with himself was not according to Scripture. Was not according to, was not aligned with the promises of God. The devil would love for us to think things that go against God's word. You go back to the Garden of Eden. We go back there regularly, right? And Satan came to Eve, and God had gave Adam and Eve specific instructions. And Satan came and said, Yea, hath God said? He didn't really mean it. He's not actually as good as he says that he is. He's not capable of doing what he said he was going to do. You're not really going to, Right? And he brings doubt, and you begin to talk with yourself, and you begin to say in your heart, and fear and doubt rises up, and then you do stupid stuff. What happens? And so Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. I'm going to lose my kingdom. So I'm going to proceed, and what we find in the rest of this, he's going to do everything God told him not to do. God says, if you will obey me, if you'll follow my commandments, I will make you a sure house. And in order to make himself a sure house, he does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. And there are plenty of Christians today that are following in, Re or in Jeroboam's footsteps of thinking that they're going to be able to build a life for themselves going contrary to God's word. 
Okay, I've got just a couple uh, passages of scripture down here uh, with this thought of the two men that didn't listen. In James chapter 1 and verse number 22, James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And so Rehoboam, or excuse me, Jeroboam heard the word, didn't do it, right? And by the way, it says deceiving yourselves. He was deceiving himself. He was speaking to himself in his heart, saying craziness, right? Yeah. Uh, in uh, Luke chapter number 6, starting with verse number 46, I'm not going to turn there for the time being, but uh, he says, How is it that you call me Lord, Lord, but do not the things which I say? And he says, I'm going to liken the man who's that way to a man who builds his house upon the sand. And we know the story about the man who builds himself, builds his house on the sand and in the stone. And so he says, if you are hearing God's word, but yet you're not heeding it, you're doing away with the foundation. And you're building on things that are flimsy and unstable. And whenever they are put to the test, it's going to fall apart. And so this is what happens to Jeroboam. He hears the word of God. He doesn't heed the word of God. He builds his kingdom on things that are not of God, and his kingdom falls, taken away from him. Um, but on the other hand, we can turn back to Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, in verse number 8, it says, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. And so by this time, Jeroboam should have had that scripture that he could have went back to. It says, meditate in it day and night, become familiar with the word of God, then you can live by it, and if you live according to God's precepts, then your way is going to be prosperous, you're going to have good success. So we have all these different things that we can look at in God's word that shows us if we live according to God's principles and precepts, it is then that God is able to protect us, to provide for us, to prosper us, to make sure the way that we go is a good way. Now, I'm not talking peace and prosperity. Your bank account's going to overflow and you're going to drive a Mercedes. That's not what God measures as success. But God is going to give us success both now and in eternity, whenever we're following his precepts. But if we live and do by the world standards, by the world's ways of doing things, we are going to sow destruction in our own lives, and we're going to reap it. Okay? And so anyway, he said in his heart that the people are going to continue going down to Jerusalem. They're going to continue going down to Solomon's temple, because in the law they were commanded three times a year for all of them, especially all of the men, but for the Jewish people to go down to the temple and to offer up sacrifices, to have feasts and festivals, do all those things. And so if all of the people from his kingdom is going to the rival kingdom in his mind and going down there and their religion and their temple and their priests and everything are contained down there, then their hearts are going to go away from him and are going to go toward Rehoboam, and in the end, there's going to be a move for a united kingdom based on the religion, and uh, Jeroboam is going to be the odd man out. And so they're going to turn against him. 
he's going to be killed and he's going to lose his life. He's going to lose his kingdom. And so he says, I have to do something. By the way, beware whenever you have that mindset. When you have that thought that comes through your mind, I have to do something. Because that rush, that push, that hurry, that anxiety, whatever it is, I've got to do something, is going to rush you right into mess. That's the way it works. Uh, it's one thing about God and His Spirit. He doesn't rush us. I mean, He's got eternity. He's not in a hurry. But anyway... Um, So they're going to go, they're going to return to King Rehoboam. They're going to kill me in verse number 27. So in verse 28, he says, Whereupon the king took counsel. He's following in Rehoboam's footsteps. And he goes to his counselors and says, This is what I've been talking to myself about. This is the conversation I've been having with my heart. This is the fears. This is my emotions. And I'm afraid I'm going to lose my kingdom. The people are going to continue going down to Israel, or down to Jerusalem, excuse me. They're going to continue going to the temple, and this is all going to fall apart. They're going to be united in their religion. And so his counselors help him with this idea, and they counseled him to make two calves of gold. And he said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And so we find a familiar passage or familiar quote there because what he says here, they make the gold calf. Mm -hmm. Have we seen that happen before? Mm -hmm. And whenever we've seen that before, it was whenever the children of Israel were in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. Moses was on the mountain. Aaron was there. They said, up, oh, make us gods because we don't know what happened to Moses. Aaron says, break off all your golden earrings, come here. And he fashions them a golden calf. And then he tells them, these be the gods which brought you up out of Egypt. And so Jeroboam's not learning from the past mistakes. He's repeating the same sins and the same mistakes of their forefathers that got them judged in the wilderness. And so if he has half a brain... The Jews were very familiar with their history. They were familiar with the story of Moses, the Exodus, all those things. And they know that there was a golden calf before, and he is repeating it. But with where they were at, and of course Jeroboam spent quite a bit of time down in Egypt, but in the area that they were at, golden calves were common. Baal was pictured as being a cow, a calf. Uh, the gods of, the Egy or of Egypt, many of them were pictured as being cows. Okay? And so he's going by all of the worship and all the religion that he's seen. So he makes a false god. He makes an idol. And so now we've already broken two of the Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. I shall not have any graven images. I shall not have any other gods before me, right? Mm -hmm. And so anyway, what he tells the people, not only is he making these for himself, he is starting this for all the people. He is the king. He is the leader. And he is leading the nation into this false religion. And so he says, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. So now it's a religion of convenience, right? Mm -hmm. Religion of convenience. It's too far to travel to Jerusalem. We're going to make it to where you can worship close to home. 
You won't have to make that journey. You won't have to uh, go through these sacrifices and these steps. We're going to make it cheap. We're going to make it easier. We're going to make it close. We're going to do all these things for you. And so that's going to appeal to them. But one of the problems with this is whenever he says, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem, who was it that chose Jerusalem? God, God chose Jerusalem. Who was it that told them all to go up to Jerusalem? God. <laughs> and so God says, Jerusalem is where my temple is going to be. That's where my name is going to be called. This is where all of you are together together at the feasts, the festivals, these three times throughout the year. It's Jerusalem that you're supposed to come to. And Jeroboam says, no, that's too hard. Y'all get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. God said, do this. And Jeroboam said, it's too hard. I'm going to make it easier on you. This is a trend within religion. Dumbing it down, making it simpler, saying, I know God said this, but he's asking too much of you. How about we do it this way instead? And so we are taking away what God has said and doing what man has said and making a religion, like I said, of convenience. And so it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. And so these are the gods that brought you up out of Egypt. Uh, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 4 is where that was said before. And God says, obviously, this isn't the God that brought you up out of Egypt. It wasn't this cow that they ended up having to grind into powder, throw in the river, and make him drink out of, right? And so it says in verse 29, he set the one in Bethel and the other one in Dan. Bethel was on the border between Judah and Israel. And Dan was on the northern border between, uh, between Israel and Syria to the north. And so that's what he did. He set it on either border. So anyone who was going from uh, the northern kingdom down to Jerusalem to worship would have to go past Bethel and this cow. And so it was kind of extra temptation there. Why go all the way to Jerusalem if we can just go to Bethel? Make it easier. And so he put him in Bethel and put him in Dan. Verse 30, this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And this is spoken of in Hosea chapter number 8 verses 1 through 7. I'll go ahead and turn over there just because it's a good passage that goes along with this. In Hosea chapter 8, it says, Set the trumpets to thy mouth. He shall come as an eagle against the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and trespassed against my law. Israel shall cry unto me, My God, we know thee. Israel hath cast off the thing that is good. The enemy shall pursue him. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and of their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off. Thy calf, O Samaria, uh, hath cast thee or cast off. Mine anger is kindled against them. How long will it be ere they attain to innocency? For from Israel was it also the workmen made it. Therefore it is not God, but the calf of Samaria shall be broken in pieces. For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. It hath no stalk, the bud shall yield no meal, it shall 
If, if so be it yield, the stranger shall swallow it up. And so that was Hosea's prophecy against, or against Israel, against Samaria, against their golden calves. Okay, but this all started off with Jeroboam, and it proceed or it persisted, I should say, all the way up until they're carried off into Assyria. Okay, and it all starts off with this. Now I can say that really it started off with Solomon, because Solomon brought in the idol worship. He got the people comfortable with the idols. He did half the job for Jeroboam, because he was already putting in the high places, the temples, and false gods, and all these things. And Jeroboam came in with the calf and says, hey, this is the God of Israel. This is the one that brought you up out of Egypt. And they were already ready to accept them. Yeah. And so what Solomon did a little, his children did a lot. Yeah. In verse 31, he made the lowest of the people priests and not the sons of Levi. We find in... Second uh, Chronicles chapter 13 in verse number 9 that he made it very easy to become a priest. Whatever it says he made of the lowest of the people, he's not talking about the ones that are poor or the ones that are outcast. He's talking about the most depraved of the people. He's saying, if you want to have a position as my priest, as one of my religious representatives, if you can bring to me enough of an offering... I'll make you a priest. And so the passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse number 9, it talks about anyone that could bring uh, somewhere on the line, I think it was about seven or nine different animals to him. He would consecrate them as a priest. So it was a pay-to-play kind of thing. You could buy your way into the, into the ministry. And so it wasn't the people of Levi. As a matter of fact, he cast out the people of Levi. You find that in... Second uh, Chronicles chapter number 11, that he actually strips them of their office, strips them of their land, and they flee the northern kingdom, and all of the Levites go to Judah. So in essence, Rehoboam ends up with three tribes because he has the Levites, he has the Benjamites, and he has, the, has Judah as well. But with all of this religion, he says, I've got to take away God's people. I'm going to put my own men in there. I've got to take away God's religion and I'm going to put my own in there. But I'm going to make it close enough to being like the real thing that people will be satisfied with it. It's going to be convenient, but it's still going to be enough that it's going to soothe their conscience. It's still going to satisfy them so that they're not going to be going and falling after God. Okay? He has, um, he has an object of worship. He has the altars. He has the priesthood. But they also need to have holy days as well. And so the the day of the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe it was, was in the seventh month. So he decides we're going to have our feast on the eighth month. And he it says he devises it of his own heart. We'll have a feast on the eighth month. And so everyone can just come and they can worship. They can have their feast. They can all the rituals, all the trappings of religion. But it, every bit of it was made as a cheap counterfeit of the truth, just enough to pull the people in, just enough appeal to the flesh for them to do away with the things of God and accept his religion. And they accept it pretty much wholesale. Now, there are some that 
fled and went to Judah because they weren't going to accept the false religion. But for the most part, they accepted the counterfeit Christianity that was offered up by Jeroboam. Now, the reason why I'm kind of belaboring this a little bit is that this is the same thing that Satan has always done. Anything that God has, Satan has a counterfeit. And if you look at religion, you find that there are plenty of religions out there that have just enough truth or enough similarity to the truth to be acceptable amongst people in order to win them over. And it also mixes in things that appeals to the flesh so that they'll buy into it. They make it convenient. They make it tempting. You don't have to give up all of your sin. We'll make you a way till you can feel good about your sins, right? We're going to have religious systems. You're going to be able to go through all of these rituals and everything because people feel like rituals somehow get them closer to God. So we'll provide the rituals. We'll provide the organization, all these different things for you. Just fall in line with it. And you mix a little bit of paganism, mix a little bit of Christianity, term for that syncretism, combine the two of them together, and what you got? You've got the Judaism of Jesus' day. You've got Catholicism of our day. Right? Take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. This appeals to your flesh. Right? And everybody satisfied with it. Make it convenient. Make it easy. By the way, this whole thing of them uh, sanctifying priests of the lowest of the people is also something for us to take note of because whenever God gave the Jews a religion, and I hate to call it that, but whenever he gave them Judaism, he had some very specific rules laid in place for those who were going to minister at the tabernacle, at the temple, the ones that were going to conduct the sacrifices, the ones that were going to be the spiritual leaders in the priesthood. He had very specific things laid out for them. Right, and so even you look at uh, uh, Uzziah. Whenever he no, was it Uzziah? Uzzah, not Uzziah. Uzzah that reached out and he touched to study the ark whenever David was carrying it improperly, and he was smitten because he was not a Levite. God was very specific about the priesthood and how that was supposed to go, and people have been taking lightly the things of God. You find within Christianity today, people will follow just anyone, especially in the the time of uh, YouTube theologians, right? Televangelism and all these kind of things. And you have some of the most wicked and depraved people that are standing up proclaiming themselves to be something. And they are appealing to really the lowest denominator. Whereas God has a high standard. And you start looking there now uh, ordaining homosexuals. They're ordaining women to be pastors. There are all these different things that they are doing, and they are making some of the most wicked, I'm not saying women are wicked, by the way, but they're making some of the most wicked men to be so-called spiritual leaders. They're making people who are not qualified to be spiritual leaders. They're following in the same path 
as Jeroboam, and they're making a religion that appeals to the masses instead of one that pleases the Savior. And so this is what we're finding here. And so he's got his counterfeit religion, and it is all set out for him to be able to keep power and control. And so that's something else for us to see from this passage is the idea of using religion to unify and to control. The entire purpose behind his religion was, I want to keep the people following me. I want to keep them under my thumb. So I'm going to create a religion. Keep them close. Keep them under my thumb. Make sure they continue following me. So I'm going to make this religion. You study back through history. I'm not talking about church history. You study through history. And every culture, every country, every empire has had a religion. And the religion played a huge role in controlling the masses and empowering the government. And even if you go through the Reformation, you look at all the different Protestant denominations. There has been at some point in time that they were the state religion for someone. You know, you've got the Anglican Church of England, Church of Ireland over in the UK. You've got the Presbyterians up in Scotland. You've got Lutherans over in Germany, right? You've got Catholics in Rome, in Spain, in Portugal, in Mexico, in Ireland, in most of South America, Latin America, right? And so you've got all these places that are uh, dominated by these religions even the start of the Catholic Church under Constantine, whenever the dream that came to him is to conquer by the cross. He says, I'm looking for a way to control the masses. Give me a religion that I can use to oppress the people. And so that's still going on to this day, is using religion and these kind of things. And this is one of the reasons why we find throughout scriptures, especially, obviously, throughout the New Testament, that Jesus wasn't leading a political movement. Jesus wasn't uh, sending out his apostles and his disciples to go and overthrow governments or take control through that. Uh, The New Testament isn't saying, okay, whenever you come to Thessalonica, take over the government. Not saying whenever we come to Rome, we're going to overthrow Caesar. But instead, it is a matter of uh, winning folks to Christ And Christ makes a difference in the people's lives. He changes the culture. He changes the country. But it's not through power, oppression, and control. And so it's amazing how we're seeing the devil's agenda creep in through all this through religion and how he is motivated by fear, desiring control, appealing to the flesh. Right? and leading them all away from God while feeling as if they're okay with him. False security. And so we come down to chapter 13. We've got to get to our second man that didn't listen before we're out of time. So Jeroboam didn't listen because God says, if you'll do my will and trust my promises, you're going to have success. Right? And Jeroboam did not trust God, did not keep his promises, And he's not going to have success. So we come down to chapter 13. And for sake of time, I don't have the time to read all of this. 
But it's a very good passage, very good chapter. But in verse number one, it says, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he, the prophet that came out of Judah, cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burned upon thee. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when the king uh, Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him, and his hand which he put forth against him dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. And the altar was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God, and pray for me, that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord, and the king's hand was restored unto him again, and became as it was before. And the king said unto the man of God, Come with me, and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that cometh to Bethel. So here we have a prophet in Judah because obviously there wasn't anything of a spiritual element in Israel anymore, right? And so God sends a prophet from Judah up to Bethel, which remember it was right on the border between Judah and Israel. Sent him up to Bethel and he sent him to cry against the altar. And while he was there, Jeroboam was there. He was there making sacrifices. And so the prophet comes and starts preaching a message basically to the altar, prophesying to the altar in Jeroboam's presence. And the message that he preaches, the message he prophesies, is that there is going to be a king from David's family that is going to desecrate this altar, burn the prophets on this altar, or the priests on this altar, and destroy this altar. And he even names him, it's going to be Josiah, which is going to come along almost 300 years later. Or at least 200 years later, between two and 300 years later. Calls him by name before he's ever even thought of. And says he's going to come. And if you want to read about the uh, fulfillment of that, uh, it is in, let me see. 2 Kings chapter 23, verses uh, 15 through 17 is when Josiah comes and he burns the, the priest's bones on the altar, desecrates it, and destroys it. And so he says, Josiah is going to come. He's going to destroy the, your high places. And there's a sign that goes along with this. Your altar is going to be rent. It's going to break in two to show you that the things that I'm saying are of God is going to happen. And so Jeroboam's response to this man telling him, you have sinned against God, you have done wrong, and God's going to judge, and God's going to destroy this, Jeroboam's response is kill the prophet. 
it's amazing how often that is the the sentiment that we find. We've all heard the phrase, don't shoot the messenger. That's what they always want to do. They want to shoot the messenger. And so how would you respond if you were Jeroboam, though? Because Jeroboam is afraid of Rehoboam. He's afraid of the house of David. He's afraid that they're going to put him out. And this prophet just came and said, a child of David's lineage is going to destroy this place. So everything that you're afraid of is going to happen. And so as he stretches out his arm to tell his lackeys, kill him, puts his arm out and his arm dries up. He's like, oh, I can't move. What do you think of like, I mean, I know there's a too much TV movie, but you think it was like Thermostone or what, what would a dried up be like? No, it says it dries up, so I'm thinking like a mummy, like raisin. Moisture goes out of it. I don't know because it says dry. So you're like, anyway, you go stiff. Some kind of a palsy or whatever. But it makes it very plain to him that this is an instant thing. This is a severe thing. And he kind of flips out. And his response in this is he begs him, entreat now the face of the Lord thy God. Right. At least he's honest in that. It's not my God, it's your God. Yeah. Because... To be honest, Jeroboam's God was powerless. It was a golden calf. Right. So he says, Entreat the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. So what's Jeroboam's biggest concern? Himself. Himself. The temporary, the physical life down here. He's not concerned with spiritual things. He's not, oh man, I've offended a holy God. He's like, man, I'd really like my arm to work again. Mm-hmm. That was it. Don't want to lose my kingdom. Don't want to lose my arm. Don't care if I lose my soul. And a crazy thing about this is that God actually responds to his selfish request, allows the prophet to do a miracle and heal him. In the meantime, with all this, the altar that he's at split down the middle and the ashes pour out. So what you find here, there are three miracles that happen at this time that Jeroboam is a part of, recipient of, whatever you want to say, because his arm dries up, the altar splits, and his arm is restored. Unquestionably miraculous events that happen at the hand of God, but does miracles win Jeroboam over? Does miracles make him repent? Does miracles make him fear God and believe God? No. No. And there's never any sign whatsoever that Jeroboam repents. There's never any sign whatsoever that Jeroboam mends his ways. As a matter of fact, if you get to the end of chapter number 13, verse 33 and 34, after this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again the lowest of the people priests and of the high places, Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became a sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. He didn't learn. And so anyway, this prophet tells him all these things are going to happen, performs three miracles, and Jeroboam after this, he says, oh man, 
I want you to come home with me and I want you to have a, a meal with me and I'm going to give you a reward. So this is kind of the idea of Satan. If you can't beat him, join him. That's always been one of his games. And so now the temptation for the man of God, he is speaking to a king, the king that briefly wanted to kill him, now likes him. And so there is an appeal to him. Not only that, there may be a little bit of pride involved as well because this prophet was a human. And so this man just said this to the king, just worked these miracles in front of the king, and now the king says, come home with me and I'll give you a reward. And the prophet tells him, if you would give me half of your kingdom, I'm not coming with you because God told me no. Fair enough, right? He took a stand. He resisted the king. He says, you're not going to buy me over with silver and gold. God says, don't stay there. Don't eat or drink there. And don't even go back the same way that you came. Why? This man was bringing a message of judgment. Israel had corrupted itself. He was serving the living God. Don't stay in the middle of all that mess. Get out of it. And that's good advice for us as Christians today as well. There's a lot of temptation for us to play around in the edges of sin and wickedness, for us to surround ourselves by these things and say, well, it's not going to hurt me. I want to be a witness to it. I want to I go and win these people to the Lord while I'm being surrounded by all this wickedness. But here's the thing. While you're trying to evangelize them, the devil's evangelizing you, and a lot of times he does a better job. And so anyway, God forbade him from sticking around there because he didn't want his children to get corrupted by that mess. But if you know your Bibles and you're familiar with this, remember I said there's two men that didn't listen. It sounds like this guy listened for now, right? But as he's turning and he's going home, verse 11, I told you I wasn't going to read all this. I'm not going to. But I'm going to read the main part. Verse 11, it says, Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, by the way, what's a prophet doing in Bethel? Prophet of God. Bethel is where the false religion was. Bethel is where the golden calf was. Why is there a prophet of God in Bethel? If he was a prophet of God, shouldn't he have been picking up his stuff and moving to Judah? But anyway, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, them they told also to their father. So they told him everything, even what he said to the king about not returning with the king, not going back, right? Not tearing there. In verse 12, And their father said unto them, What way went he? For his sons had seen what way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle me an ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak tree, and he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go uh, go in with thee. That was the truth, right? Yeah. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with thee in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, Thou shalt eat no bread nor drink water there, nor turn again to go by the way that thou camest. And he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied unto him. 
So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drank water. So this man had a clear message from God. Don't do this. He resisted the king. He said, there's no way, not even if you pay me half of your kingdom, I'm not going to disobey God. And so as he was leaving, going back another way, he got tired, whatever. He sat down under an oak tree to rest. God's message to him was get out of there as fast as you can. But he tarried. And as he tarried, this old man came to him and says, I'm a prophet too. And an angel appeared to me and said, it's okay. You can come back with me and you can eat and drink with me because I'm a prophet. God revealed this. And so it, uh, it invalidates the previous message. Okay. And the man was gullible enough. He listened. He didn't pray. He didn't go to God. He didn't say, okay, well, thank you for the offer, but I'm going to operate off of the things that I know to be true from God. He just said, okay, and went back with him. And the reason why this is important for us to learn is Jeroboam messed up whenever he listened to his heart. This man messed up when he listened to man. We don't listen to our heart. We don't listen to men. We listen to the Word of God. We listen to the truth that's been revealed to us from God's Word. Jeroboam was told, if you follow me and do as I have instructed you, then I will give you success. And Jeroboam says, I don't believe it. I'm going to do my own thing. This man was told, don't stop, don't stay, don't eat, don't drink. And then a man said, God revealed to me something different. Believe me. Believe what I have to say. And if he would have been wise, he would have said, no, I believe God. But instead, he believed man, and it brought destruction upon himself. And there are so many people today who don't take the time to be familiar with the Word of God and know the Word of God, and they are easily led astray, carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're easily led astray by everyone who claims to have... uh, claims to be a person of God, claims to have had a vision, had a dream, or been a teacher, or went to this seminary, or graduated from this, or somehow they have some sort of authority on themselves, and they bring about things that are contrary to the Word of God. And people says, well, they must know what they're talking about. I'm just going to follow them. That's why we come back and we talk about the Bereans, where it says they were more noble than those of the Thessalonica and that they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. See, there are a lot of people that will come to you and say, God showed me this. And it doesn't line up with scripture. Mm -hmm. I had a dream about this. Well, I've got a scripture that says you didn't. There are lots of people that will try to tell you what God's will is for your life. But here's the thing about it. God is a personal God. Mm -hmm. And he deals with us individually. And if he has a will for your life, he's going to reveal it to you. 
I've had people to come to me in the past and say, God has showed me that this is what he wants you to do. And I said, that's funny, he didn't show me. I was reading today and a, a story came out. It was uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know, or, okay. Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached in the Metropolitan Baptist Tabernacle in London. And it would it's it would still be considered a mega church by today's standards, but he's called the Prince of Preachers. And he was a great preacher. But a man came up to him one time, and a man that was a little mentally unstable, and he says, God has showed me that I am supposed to preach for you in your pulpit this Sunday. So Charles Spurgeon looked at him, and he says, well, if God shows me, I'll let you know. And so that's the, the, the fact of the matter is that people have all these ideas. They will try to use the name of God to their benefit and for their purposes to try to control you, to try to get you to do what they want you to do, and they will lead you into destruction, and you have to fill it. And I'm not saying everyone's going to, but it always has to be filtered through the lens of God's Word. You always have to compare it with Scripture. You have to know what does the Bible say, because that person down the street may tell you something wrong. Even with me as I'm teaching, as I'm preaching in things, if I go against the Word of God then forget what I have to say and cling to Scripture. Right. Now, I do my very best to stay very close to Scripture and make sure that the things I say are out of Scripture. And that's one reason I don't get into politics and opinions very much, because I want to be completely married to Scripture and the things that I say. But there are plenty of people who are going to try to sway, and they're going to get people who would rather leave this on the shelf and let it collect dust and just follow someone. Right? And I don't know. I think that's common in society today. I don't want to have to put the effort in. This goes back to Jeroboam's thing, easy religion. I don't want to have to read. I don't want to have to study. I don't want to have a prayer life. I don't want to have to actually put any effort into my religion. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Let me do a checklist and do some things to where I can appear to be religious and feel good about myself, but don't make it too difficult. And so anyway, what this guy did is he believed the lie. The Bible says that Satan goeth about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it gets very real for this guy in just a minute because I know I don't have time for this, but uh, as he is sitting and eating dinner with this guy, doing what God told him not to do, God uses the lying prophet to tell him the truth. He says, okay, if you want to listen to this guy, let me give him something worth saying. And so the prophet says, essentially, God told you not to do this. You did it anyway, and God is going to bring judgment upon you. And he says, you're going to die. Okay? Verse 21, he says, for as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in the place which the Lord did say unto thee, Eat no bread and drink no water. Thy carcass shall not come into the sepulcher of thy father. And so what ended up happening, verse 24, when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by it, and the lion also stood by the carcass. And behold, men passed by and saw the carcass cast in the way and the lion standing by the carcass. And they came and they told it in the city 
where the old prophet dwelled. So God sends the prophet that this guy was so intent on listening to, says, you're going to die. The guy gets on his ass, he travels out of town, and as he's traveling out of town, a lion comes out, kills him, and then something strange happens. Yeah. Y'all paid attention to this? This is weird. The lion kills the man but doesn't eat him, doesn't rip him to shreds, he just kills him. That's it. And then the lion sits there. The donkey doesn't run away. It's just there. So you got a lion sitting there, a donkey sitting there, and a dead body there. And not just for a short amount of time. Everybody's walking by, and they're scratching their head, and they're like, what's this about? Dead guy, donkey, lion, just sitting there. And the reason I'm saying this is, if there's a lion, the donkey's running away. Yeah, everybody is. Or getting eaten. Yeah. If the guy dies, the lion's feasting on him. The lion's not feasting on him, not feasting on the donkey. Donkey's not running. Just, and people are walking by saying, that's the weirdest thing. They get into town and they're talking about it, because wouldn't you? Yeah. Everybody's like, did you see the lion? Yeah. Well, word gets back and he says, okay, I know what that is. That's That was the man of God. God said that was what was going to happen. So he goes and he gathers up the prophet. He buries him in his own sepulcher and says, whenever I die, bury me with him. Okay? So that's what happens with all of that because this man didn't listen to God. He listened to some man that lied to him. He lost his life because of it. So both of them were, mar- excuse me, both of them were buried in this sepulcher in Bethel. And then you come along 200 years later, you have Josiah that comes by. And Josiah is going, he's ridding the land of all of the false gods, of all of the high places, of all the altars, and he comes to the altar at Bethel. And the way they're defiling the altars and tearing them down, he is burning the bones of the priests and of man on the altar. And so he's emptying out the sepulchers. And he's putting the bones on the altar and burning the bones on the altar to desecrate the altar. And he comes to the sepulcher of these two prophets. And somehow they have a headstone, an inscription, something that says that this was the prophet that prophesied against the altar. And Josiah says, leave them alone. Don't disturb them. 200 years later, and it ties it together. And so Josiah says, this is the guy that prophesied against the altar. Don't make him a part of this. Leave him there. And then he proceeds to burn bones on the altar and tear the altar apart and leaves this guy buried. Pretty neat, right? And so anyway, as I said a moment ago, um, Jeroboam listened to his heart and it led him astray. Uh, This prophet listened to a false prophet, led him astray. Both of them had the clear revelation of God and they didn't listen. So for us as Christians, we've got the clear revelation of the word of God, but yet because of our doubts, because of our fears, because of our insecurities, because of our pride, because of listening to the wrong people and the wrong things, we ignore God's word and then we wonder why our lives are falling apart. God's given us the instruction book. He's told us what's good and what's right. He says, if you obey my word, you'll have good success. And yet we say, nah, 
I think I can get by a different way. I think I can mix a little bit of the world in with a little bit of God, and I think I can get by okay, what Jeroboam was doing. And so anyway, they're both a warning to us that God's word is the authority. And if God has said it, we need to believe it. We need to obey it because it is the only way that we're going to end up with a good life, with good success. And it's going to lead us around a lot of hurts and a lot of heartaches that we could miss out on. So, um, yeah, uh, I better wrap up there. Does anyone have anything to say or anything to add this evening? Then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the days for the redeem, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Walking circumspectly that means I'm paying attention to what's going on all the time because we do have an adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. Seek it goes about seeking whom he may devour. And whenever we depart from God, whenever we lean to our own understanding. That's whenever we get in the traps and the snares of the devil. That's when we get blindsided by these things. Not only that, but we end up allowing the flesh to take charge and we end up allowing Satan to, to overpower the truth with lies. This is something that Les and I, we've talked about quite often, is just the fact that we have to subject our feelings to the truth. Yeah. Because... Pardon me for saying this, but the whole thing of I can't help the way I feel, right? Feelings come. That's just part of life. But if we are wise, whenever that starts happening to us, we step back and say, wait a second. I know I feel this way, but what is the truth? Whenever I'm Jeroboam and I'm afraid, I'm like, I'm going to lose my kingdom. But wait, God said if I followed him, I would have a sure kingdom. That reorients everything, right? Whenever we subject our heart to the truth instead of allowing it to distort the truth and make it into a lie. There's another passage of Scripture I'm trying to think of, but it's not coming to me right now. I probably have it written down here somewhere, but I can't remember. Um, but just uh, the idea of how we have to um, prepare our heart to seek the Lord. That it doesn't happen naturally, but it's an, a conscious decision that we have is that we are preparing our heart to seek the Lord, that we are uh, guiding our heart, that instead of being led by it, instead of uh, saying in our heart, we're saying to our heart, mm-hmm. heart, you listen. Yeah. Right? You got all these crazy ideas, you're talking all this nonsense, you listen. This is what God's Word says. 
right? Anything else? Okay, then let's go ahead and pray. I'm calling back. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for this time in your word. And we thank you, Lord, for the, the cautionary tales in Scripture. Lord, we see these guys that, as I often say, are good, bad examples, Lord. And unfortunately, too often we can relate to these guys, Lord, and how often our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, how often they're telling us things and making us feel all these different ways. Lord, help us, Lord, to reorient our hearts to your word. Lord, I know there's plenty of people that would uh, tell us all sorts of things like this prophet and, and try to lead us astray. Help us, Lord, to be in your word, be familiar with your words so that we can rightly divide, so that we can uh, follow after you rather than all these other things. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you do. We thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we thank you for all the things that you have given us, all of the, the, the weapons, I guess, to fight against these things and the truth of your word. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.